0: Well, good morning, everyone. So I know that it's Sunday morning, and it's still kind of early. The sun's not even fully up yet, so this might be a bit of a heavy note to begin our time together on, but uh, this week I've been thinking a lot about last words and just how, as people, as humans, we give a lot of weight and significance to somebody's last words. This is their last chance to really leave their mark and to communicate uh, what, what they want to say. And so if, if you know that you know, your next sentence is going to be your last, you're, you're going to try and make it meaningful. You're going to say, I- I'm sorry, or, or I love you. Um, you know, you're know, you not going to be talking about something trivial like the weather. And so y- y- your last words, they, they, they really reveal what is most important to you. And, and in our passage today, we get to overhear someone's last words. And so uh, just as a recap of of where we've been, uh, we are in our second week of Jonah. Last week we looked at the first six verses of Jonah, and Jonah was called by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. And the people of Nineveh were the enemy of Israel. And so Jonah hated them. And, And Nineveh, they were Very violent, very cruel. They ruled with an iron fist. And so when God called Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh and call them to repentance, Jonah ran the other way. And and it was uh, as a judgment on Jonah, but also as a grace for Jonah that God sent a storm to track Jonah down. And, And so that's where we pick up this week. Jonah is in the boat with some sailors and they are in the middle of a storm. And they feel like they are about to die. The water is crashing in. They are going down. Things are looking pretty bad. And so in verse 7, we see that these sailors cast lots and that the lot fell on Jonah. So everybody knew that this was Jonah's fault, that they were in this storm. And so these sailors decide to do a quick interrogation of Jonah. And they ask him all of these questions. They ask him... What do you do? What's your occupation? Where are you from? What's your country? They just, they bombard him with a bunch of identity questions. And then in verse 9, we, we see Jonah's response, and his response tells us everything that we need to know about Jonah. This is the first time that Jonah speaks in this passage, and because of how strong and serious the storm had gotten, Jonah had to be thinking that these were also going to be his last words. And so with his last words and asking, what is your identity? Jonah decides to go with, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So, so to contextualize that a little bit, to, to put that how we would hear that today, that's as if somebody were holding you over the edge of a bridge, and they said, you get one last sentence to tell us who you are before you die, and you decide to go with, I'm an American. And I love the Lord. So remember, your last words reveal what is most important to you. And in the last moment of his life, Jonah decided to lead with, I'm a Hebrew. He led with his nationality. He led with his ethnicity. Jonah defined himself by his country and the color of his skin. That is where he drew his value and his worth. And eventually he got to praising God. You know, he got to that at the very end. So that was part of his identity. But first and foremost, at his core, Jonah's identity was built on his ethnicity and his nationality. And this really begins to explain why Jonah refused to go to Nineveh in the first place. Jonah had warring desires in his heart. He was a Hebrew and he was a God-fearer. He loved his country, and he loved his God. And, and when God called him to go and preach to his enemies, th- then those desires were, were pitted against each other. And ultimately, we see that Jonah's loyalty was to his country. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 4, Jonah fully reveals his heart on this. And, and spoiler alert, uh, Jonah is going to survive this storm he's going to uh, get spit out by the fish and eventually he is going to go to Nineveh and he is going to call them to repentance and to his horror they are going to repent and, and to even add to his horror god is going to relent from destroying them and so in response to Nineveh's repentance and god's relenting at the beginning of chapter 4 we read that all this displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah was basically saying, saying, God, I knew it. I know who you are. I know your character. I know that you are gracious. I know that you are abounding in steadfast love. I know that you are slow to anger. And I knew that if your word reached the Ninevites, that I knew your word would do its transforming work and it would soften their hearts and that they would repent. And because I know of your kind and gracious character, I knew that you would forgive them. And you would relent from blowing them off the face of the map. And if I'm going to live in a world where those people survive, that's not a world I want to be a part of. So just go ahead and kill me anyway. You started to get a sense for Jonah's heart. At best, he was a zealous patriot. And at worst, he was a racist and a nationalist. Jonah thought that God's love was reserved for his own country and his own race. And if you weren't an Israelite, if you didn't look like him, if you didn't think like him, if you didn't sound like him, if you didn't share his cultural history, then then you were part of those people. You belonged in that other category. And and yes, there was some God-fearing and faith. It, It got sprinkled in at the end. Jonah gave God some lip service. But really, what Jonah was saying is, God, I want you to show mercy on whom I will show mercy a.k.a. my own tribe. And I want you to show judgment on whom I will show judgment, a.k.a. the people that I hate. If we are going to understand the book of Jonah rightly, then then there are two things that we need to realize. Uh, The first one, Mark got at this last week. He said that so often when it comes to stories in the Old Testament, we just rip them out of context and we totally lose their meaning. And and so the, the classic example of this is, Noah and the ark. And what we forget about Noah and the ark is that it's one of the saddest stories in all of human history. That the earth was filled with so much evil and so much sin that God judged the entire world and he killed everybody except for eight people. But because we want to be able to teach it in Sunday school, we just say, Hey kids, here are the giraffes. Look at how cute they are. God loves the animals too. I was like, I mean, yeah, but also no. You just, you completely missed it. Well, in the same way with Jonah, you know, you first hear Jonah, you think Jonah is about the fish, when really the fish just plays a very minor role in the story. What Jonah is actually about is telling the story of the worst prophet in Israel's history, which gets us to the second thing that we need to know about this book, if we're going to understand it. Um, I think in our attempt to tame some of the Bible stories so that we can feel comfortable teaching it in Sunday school, We, we tend to make heroes out of a lot of the biblical characters. We think just because this person is the main character in a story and just because it's in the Bible, this person is automatically good. Something that Dr. Smith, my preaching professor, said is that rarely are Bible characters models that we should imitate. Usually they are mirrors for our immorality. So when we read about Jonah, we we shouldn't see him as the hero and try and model our lives after him. We shouldn't just assume that he's the good guy. More often than not, a Bible character is going to have some very obvious sins. And they are a mirror for us to look at to see what sins do I see in them and what's the chance that I share in some of those sins. So so let me ask you this. Is there a part of you that shares Jonah's heart? Is there a part of you that has your heart sectioned off into these pieces? And one part of your heart has a true, deep, genuine love for the Lord and right next to it is just a vitriolic, down-to-your-bones hatred for someone. And I think our natural tendency is to assume, no, that, that, that can never be me. Well, well, don't be so quick to assume that you're good. Do, do some soul searching on this and, and get creative to do it. Ask yourself, if my kid brought this person home to meet the family, how would I respond? Or, or when I you know, see or hear this kind of person speaking on TV or online, is there just this kind of anger It just automatically starts to boil up when I see them for me I've realized that my heart reveals this kind of anger at night when I'm trying to go to sleep and so I lay down and you know I'm not doing anything and My mind just starts to wander, and it's like my heart just takes this opportunity to say, you're defenseless, I'm just going to put down some strong roots of anger, and I'm going to bring to mind all those people that you disagree with or you felt has wronged you, and you're just going to start having an argument with them. And so I'm just silent, but I'm so angry as I'm lying there trying to fall asleep. Our hearts are just idle and sin-making factories, And whether we realize it or not, all of us are very quick to create that other category and to fill it with the people that we hate. And so we assume that I'm on the right side and God loves me and those people are on the wrong side and there is no possible way that God could love them. But what Jonah didn't understand and what you and I so often don't understand, what kind of leads to this, this us versus them mentality, the loving of us and the hatred of them, I think at the root of that is a rejection of what we call the Imago Dei. It's just a, a, a simple term for the image of God. And the image of God, we first see that in the first chapter of the Bible. Back in Genesis, God uh, crowned his creation by, by making mankind. And he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So so that, that has a lot of implications, but... Uh, one of the the simplest, most basic implications of that is that every single person has value. Every single person, just by the fact that they are human, are made in the image of God, and they are deserving of your honor and your respect and your kindness. And and I think the, the root sin behind Every case of racism, every case of nationalism, every case of this us versus them hatred mentality, underneath all, that is a rejection of the Imago Dei. Because if you can convince yourself that that person isn't human, that that person isn't made in the image of God, that that person doesn't have a divine stamp on them, then you can justify doing anything to them. Just notice in our passage, notice how an understanding of the Imago day changes everything about how you treat someone. Especially how you treat someone that you hate. So, so last week in, in verse 5, as the storm was whipping up, you know, the water was coming in, the, the sailors were, were working as hard as they could to save themselves. And where was Jonah? He was down in the bottom of the boat, fast asleep. He thought, I'm the Israelite. I'm the Hebrew. I'm the prophet. God's word has come to me. I'm the important one here. Who cares about those pagans? I'm the most valuable one here. So if I go down, that's fine. It doesn't even matter what happens to them. Well, then this week, we have these pagan sailors. And Jonah comes to them and he says, Just throw me into the sea and the storm will stop and you'll be safe. And if I were one of those sailors, Jonah wouldn't have even finished his sentence before I was tossing him overboard. I mean, you've caused me to lose all of my goods. I've lost all my money. We're gonna die. This sounds more like a personal problem that's affecting me. You're gone. But but notice what the sailors did in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. The, The contrast is just Very, very striking. You have Jonah, the so-called prophet of God, the one who knows the Lord, the one who has a history with the Lord, and he rejects God's image in the people around him, and he doesn't care if they die. Then you have these pagans who, they don't have God's word, they don't have the temple, they don't have the history of knowing the Lord. They don't know the Lord himself, but they do recognize his image in the people around them. They know the inherent value of a human, so they do everything that they can to try and save Jonah's life. This is the first instance of what's going to be a recurring theme in the book of Jonah, and it's that whenever Jonah comes in contact with a pagan, someone outside of Israel, the people of God, that pagan is going to be painted in a really good light, and Jonah is going to be the one who walks away looking like a fool. Just kind of keep your eyes out for that over the next few weeks. So in verses 14 and 15, after trying to save him, after rowing hard to try and get back to dry land so they can save Jonah's life and preserve God's image on the earth, that the sailors reluctantly, but of necessity, they, they tossed Jonah overboard. And immediately, the storm stopped. And, and notice what the men did in response. The men feared a great fear. So back in verse 5, when the storm started, the men feared. That that, that word for anger is only used, or that word for fear is only used once. But but down in verse 16, we read that the men feared exceedingly. So, So the Hebrew language has a form, an expression, where if it's trying to communicate that an emotion is felt very, very strongly, the author will just use the same word twice, just back to back. And so literally, verse 16 reads, And the men feared, feared the Lord. So they feared exceedingly that their fear was compounding on itself. This was a fear that was increasing. And so what we see here is that their fear of the Lord far outweighed their fear of the storm. And notice, when was it that these sailors started to fear, fear the Lord? We might think this was a foxhole conversion, that it was you know, at the height of the storm when they thought that they were about to die. Maybe they said, God, if you will deliver me through this, then we will repent, we will covenant ourselves to you, and we will follow you. We read that when the sea ceased from its raging, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. So they repented when the danger was past. That They called out to the Lord when it didn't look like they needed So they weren't calling on God because of something they could get from him. They were calling on God simply out of the greatness of who God is in and of himself. And they weren't just calling on any God. They weren't, you know, it wasn't each man calling on his own tribal deity the same way that they did before. They were calling on Yahweh. The the covenant name of God. The personal name of God. These were genuine believers. And the irony and the sadness is just so strong here. Again, you have Jonah, the Israelite, the prophet of God who is rejecting God at every turn. And then you have these pagans and all that they needed to see was the power of Jonah's God to calm the sea. And they repented and they called on the name of Yahweh. So so as we reach the end of chapter one, we've talked about two of the three major themes that we're gonna see in the book of Jonah. We've talked about the Imago Dei. Simply being made in the image of God, simply by being a human, everyone is deserving of respect. And we've talked about how whenever Jonah comes in contact with a pagan, they always look great and he always looks like the idiot. And the third thing, it's been hinted at, but it really comes into focus as you get to the end of chapter one, and I think this is probably the most prominent theme throughout the book of Jonah, is the sovereignty of God. Just, just consider how the sovereignty of God is on display in chapter 1, in just 17 verses. In verse 4, God hurled a great wind upon the sea. And these sailors, the, the professional uh, fishermen, they were scared out of their minds. And then God can just stop the storm just like that. And that's when the sailors got really afraid. I don't know how true this is, but the ocean might be the strongest, most chaotic force in the world. And it submits to the word of God totally and immediately. In verse 17, we see that uh, a fish was appointed by God. And so God not only controls the ocean, he controls the creatures in the ocean. And and let's just kind of take a step back and think about what all had to happen for this fish to be right here at this time. Well, first of all, this fish had to exist. And so way back when, God sovereignly ordained that a daddy fish and a mommy fish would meet each other, they would fall in love, and they would make this baby fish. And if this fish is going to eat a full-grown human, this is a well-fed fish. So this, this fish had good parents who fed him well-rounded meals. So God was sovereign over all of his meals growing up so that he could be big enough to eat this human. And, and what if this fish had gotten here, but he had just eaten? What if he wasn't hungry? And so he's like, oh, there's Jonah, but I'm not hungry. So Jonah's going to just die. So Jonah, or God was sovereign over all of this fish's meals. And, you know, the ocean is a big place. What are the odds that this fish exists and that it's big enough to eat Jonah and that it's right here, right now, out of all the places in the ocean it could be? So, God was sovereign over this fish's migration patterns. And then, when you get to the end of chapter 2, you know, Jonah's going to be spit up on the dry land, and we read that it was because the word of the Lord spoke to the fish. That is why the fish vomited Jonah out. There was a man named Abraham Kuyper, and he said, There is not one square inch. In the entire entire universe over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not declare mine. When Paul said in Romans 8 that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purposes, that includes the mating and migration patterns of fish that we don't even know about. He is sovereign over everything. And as amazing as that is, I don't think that is where God's sovereignty is most, most clearly on display in chapter 1. I think we see God's sovereignty most clearly in the pagan sailors coming to faith. Last week, Mark talked about how, as a missionary, he drew a lot of encouragement from Jonah because Jonah was a really bad missionary. I think to call Jonah a missionary at all is to be overly generous, A missionary or a prophet is someone who carries the word of the Lord wherever God calls them to go. And God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh, but Jonah rejected the call, and he ran the other way to Tarshish. And so Jonah was not being a missionary. He was on an anti-missionary journey. He was trying to keep God's love within Israel's own borders, and he did a really good job. He ran the other way. He tried to get himself killed. He didn't mind if the pagans he were with died without having heard of Yahweh. He he preached one of the worst sermons of all time. He gave this idolatrous mix of cross and country. Jonah presented his God as wearing his country's flag. The first thing on his lips was racism and nationalism. Jonah had given a thoroughly sinful example of what a relationship with God looked like and what happened. Revival. People started coming to faith. God used a deeply flawed and very sinful man like Jonah, and God, in his sovereignty, was still able to accomplish his purposes. As a church that wants to be on mission, that wants to see our neighbors and our coworkers come to faith, and as a church that wants to uh, pursue planting churches because we want to see the gospel expand beyond just our little corner of the world. The sovereignty of God has to be a bedrock for us. So, so often I think that the reason why, why we refuse to get in the gospel game, why we refuse to just stay on the sideline and not share the gospel with those who do not know them is because we are afraid that God is not sovereign enough or powerful enough or gracious enough to use someone as flawed and as sinful and as messed up as me. We think, I, I've got too many problems. I, I've got to just focus on myself. I've got to keep showing up at church. I've got to learn a little more. I've got to grow as a disciple, become more mature. And then once I've reached a benchmark that I've set for myself, then I'll say, okay, God, I'm ready to go where you would have me. When I uh, became a Christian in college with my call to faith came a call to ministry. And so just where I was in my context at the time, that meant that I had to go to seminary. And I remember that I had one of those Jonah moments I said, absolutely not. I I am not going to do that. And for about six months, I ran the other way. And the main reason why I rejected that call, I remember, is because I didn't think that I was smart enough. I, I I was this new Christian. I had all of these friends who had been believers and been in the church their entire lives. They could talk theology. It sounded like they were speaking a different language. I didn't understand the thing that they were talking about. And I thought, there is no way That God can use someone with such limited experience, with such an average mind, to in any way study and preach his word with any faithfulness. I remember when God made it pretty clear that he was calling us to come to Colorado and join Redemption Parker and pursue church planning. And I thought, there's no way. I'm not outgoing or energetic enough. I don't have the leadership skills. There's no way that you know a southern boy like me can make it out in Colorado. God, I, I can't do this. When, when you read the story of Jonah, you see the story of a sinful man with very limited abilities. And, and just like Jonah is not really about the fish, it's also not really about the prophet either. First and foremost, Jonah is about a sovereign God. A sovereign God who is so sovereign that every fish and every wave and every prodigal prophet still submits to his will. And because God is sovereign, because he is all-powerful, because he can do everything, that means that you don't have to. You don't have to reach a certain level of discipleship before God can use you. If he, if he can use a racist and an anti-missionary like Jonah, he can use you. Paul, in his uh, letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2, he was talking about the ministry that he had done with them previously. And he said, When I was with you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, so Paul was saying, I'm not that impressive. I, I'm not that gifted. My, my sins are very, very evident. I was not strong and impressive when I was with you. I was weak, and I was fearful, and I was trembling the whole time. And that's that's the point. Paul was not that gifted. I'm not that gifted. Sorry, but you guys aren't that gifted. And that's the point. Because we are not all powerful. We are not all capable, but we serve a God who is. So, when it comes to considering how you can join God in the work and the mission that He is already doing, just remember the old adage that God does not call the equipped, He equips the called. You don't have to be a stud, all star, first round pick, you have to be broken. You have to be needy. You have to be able to say, God, I've got nothing. I'm relying completely on you. Do with me what you will. So towards that end, let me pray for us. Lord, you are great. And we praise you for who you are, for being gracious and abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger and for being a God who is completely sovereign overall and is willing to work with sinful, broken, messed up people like us. We ask that through your word, through your spirit, through your church, that you would continue to transform our hearts, soften us, make us more into the image of Jesus.